Boker Tov, everyone. Uh, you are listening to The Reformed Rant. My name is Ed Dingus. And this is a podcast where I rant about theology, philosophy, apologetics, the church, even politics, but I do so from a distinctively Reformed perspective. The Reformed Rant podcast examines real-world issues taking place in real time, analyzes those issues in light of Scripture with the hope or the goal of helping you think better about those issues from a biblical perspective. And of course, the ultimate goal is so that your actions will honor Christ and glorify God. So today we are talking about a man uh, whose name is Tabidi Anyabwili. Uh, he was on a uh, had an interview on a podcast called Uncommentary, uh, and the subject of of course, as you might imagine, if you know anything about Thabiti, was on the issue of social justice. So you're going to hear clips. I'm just going to p- play the clips, jump in, play the clip, jump in. At the end, I've got a long commentary uh, on what I thought about, what I think about social justice, what I thought about the the interview. But um, this is the subject of today's podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you hear something that's stimulating. I hope that I say something that helps you think better about the issues that are bound up in this social justice movement uh, and why we as Christians should be very concerned about uh, what's going on in our churches uh, related to this particular issue. All right, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump in and listen to the first clip and we'll get this thing off and running. So um, you've been a part of uh, an on, a large and ongoing conversation, and I really don't think this conversation is niche. Uh, I think it does have a lot of components uh, around the idea of justice uh, and specific, not not cosmic justice, like in the end, you know, everybody's going to get theirs. Uh, <laughs> but but the, the idea of justice, how it plays out in our day-to-day lives. Um, scripture says that we're to pursue justice. The Old Testament is just replete with verses that have to do with God's concern uh, about justice in the here and now, not just uh, right. what Christ did on the cross, which is obviously of eternal consequence, uh, but the day-to-day lives, there, there's aspects of that. So um, how, how is it that, that some folks don't see justice as important, and how is it that some folks see justice as extremely important? We're going to stop right here. One of the things that really bothers me about this question is that there's there's so many things being read into this term justice. I've never met a Christian who didn't think that justice wasn't important. In fact, I've never met a human being who didn't think justice was not important. And to frame the question this way without defining what you mean by justice is reckless and irresponsible and and completely meaningless in terms of if you want to have a meaningful conversation about this subject. Wow. Um, that's a really, that's a big question. I think some people see justice as extremely important um, because of just their existential situation, mm-hmm. you know, uh, whether you think view that in historical terms or, you know, present day personal crisis. And um, we don't much like, some people don't much like this word, but, 
you know, if you are relatively privileged, um, then justice can feel like a fairly academic concern mm. uh, and not something that's impinging upon your life uh, in, in very vital ways. Um, or it could be merely a political concern, you know, something that you care about insofar as it advances uh, your view of the good life in, in sort of a political or social arena. But if you are um, at all sort of dealing with justice from the bottom, from the margins, um, from a, a sense of dread, mm. um, then justice becomes very, very important. Uh, and it, it becomes important um, because it's it's tied up with survival. Mm. It's tied up with staying alive and tied up with um, a fair opportunity to thrive um, and not just survive. And, um, and, and this is... This dynamic is written into the founding and the history of the country um, from the first contact of European settlers with native peoples um, to the arrival of the first African enslaved persons in 1619. Um, this has been a, a, a vital issue uh, in this country from day one. Um, and some folks have, because of a relatively privileged position in the country, um, I would argue have, have developed a set of cultural and political and social blinders to it, while for others it's been the most pressing theological question, the Odyssey. It's been the most pressing theological question uh, in, in the sort of people group's existence in the country. So um, you used the word privilege, which I was, uh, I, I didn't even aware that, I wasn't even aware that it was a concept until just a few years ago. That's how privileged I am. <laughs> 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 I didn't even know how to describe myself. Yeah, well, the reason that you didn't know what privilege was until a couple of years ago is because it is a recent invention, uh, in, and it is an attempt to support the narrative that's being painted out there in terms of the social justice movement. That's why most of us have never really thought of the idea of privilege in the way that it's framed today by social justice proponents. So, so, so that you understand how this works, the way that it works is, is you identify, the, you start by identifying the different classes or the people groups. This is how Marxism works. And, and then you begin to identify which groups are, quote, vulnerable, oppressed, privileged, in power, marginalized, that's where you start, and then you, you begin to paint this narrative of privilege, this narrative of vulnerability, this narrative of uh, injustice that's taking place to those who do not have versus those who have. This is exactly the way it's, this is, it's, it's exactly the way it's done in Marxist ideology. It's identical. That, that, that white people have. Uh, a relative privilege in this country mm. based upon the country's definitions of whiteness and blackness and the acceptance of whiteness as normative uh, and blackness as other, based upon a long history of laws going back to the House of Burgess in Virginia in the 1600s and 1700s, all the way down to the dismantling of Jim Crow segregation in the 60s and, uh, and arguably still enshrined in the kind of policies that give us mass incarceration, mm -hmm. um, there is the privileging of whiteness and there is the disadvantaging, relatively speaking, uh, of, other, of other people groups. 
Um, and so it's it's not something that you earn. It's something that's in your invisible knapsack, to refer to the essay from which this term comes. Um, it's something that accrues to you, that accrues to a person by virtue of, um, you know, their, their whiteness and the, and the social construction of whiteness mm-hmm. in the country. Um, and so, therefore, it's something to be to be sort of thought about and to be stewarded toward justice um, and and stewarded in a way that creates equity in society. Sometimes it feels to me like we are refusing to leave the past when it comes to this particular issue. I don't know how far back you have to go to really find this idea that whiteness is normative, but it's always. Um, I do not understand why we don't rejoice and celebrate that we've left the overwhelming majority of this racism in the dust and thank God for it. Uh, But we just, we continue to have this, this conversation, even though it is absolutely clear that changes have been made, progress has been made. We are nowhere near where we were 300 years ago, 200 years ago, 100 years ago, 50 years ago. And I want to come back to this point a little later, but why is it that these social justice warrior types paint the black community as if the entire black community is made up of the elect, that the entire black community is a community of faith? There seems to me, when we're having these conversations, absolutely no distinction between black, unregenerate, idolaters and black Christians. I mean, it's just black. And this to me is telling and it makes me wonder just exactly how these folks think. Like like Anya Bwili. What what are you thinking when when you're talking about black people? Uh, and it's almost like this is not a Christian cause. This is a this is a racial cause. This is an, an uh, let's say an ethnic Cause and that's extremely confusing to me because this has never been uh, part of the mission of the church, right? So we'll we'll come back to that. And was going to buy. Uh, it seems like to me it was his first house, and he refused to go to the bank in person. He did all of his talking over the phone, all of the deal making over the phone, and he did not go to the bank until it was the day to sign the paperwork. Mm-hmm. And I asked him why, and he said, "My mother told me." that if I wanted to borrow money to always do the deal over the phone, because if I went down there in person, there was too great a risk that they would turn me down just because I was black. Mm-hmm. Um, that's privilege to me. Uh, I, right. It's not even something I have to think about. Um, if, right. I, if I'm pulled over by the police, of course, it's never because I'm doing anything wrong, but uh, if I'm pulled <laughs> over by the police, um, you know, I know enough to know that there's some bad cops and that anybody can have a bad you know, reaction with, with an officer. But more often than not, if I get pulled over for speeding, I get let go. Now, there's. I just want to point out a couple of things. Maybe there are still financial institutions who discriminate based on color. It, it's unconscionable to me, but maybe that's the case. The point here that I want to make is that there's absolutely no evidence, no proof, nothing to support or substantiate that this would have ever happened. This is pure conjecture and speculation, and that, folks, is irresponsible. Second, I have never been pulled over by a cop for speeding and let go, ever, in my entire life, and I'm as white as can be. Just saying. 
that justice is an outflow of the gospel. It's, it's a real and a righteous expectation that we would see from people who are living on mission with God. Now, again, I'm going to point out that we ha- we're still waiting for a definition of justice. And I think the VD gets, gets to that definition, but eventually I'm going to pull it from his blog because he sticks with the same definition that uh, he put in his blog post. Uh, so talk a little bit about how we, we can't even agree on what justice means, and is there a way forward through this? That's a great question. I, I, you know, I think we are having difficulty agreeing on what justice means because um, we are not building our theology from the Bible up. So we're not building our Bible, our theology from the Bible up. All right, all right, Enyabwili. Let's see if that's a, if that's what you do. Here's an opportunity for you to build your theology from the Bible up. Let's see if you do that. In fact, we're going to go over to your, to the, to, we're going to go over to uh, Thabiti's blog post and see if, in fact, he builds his theology from the Bible up or if he does something else altogether. Seeing this in the Bible, I'm concerned that evangelicals have a hearing impairment mm. uh, when it comes to this issue, because uh, the, the word justice is just throughout the Bible, as you said before. It's, it's replete in Scripture. Indeed it is. But the question is, what do you empty that word of its biblical content and replace that content with a modern notion of what justice is? That's the question. Is that word allowed to stand on its own two feet? Do, I, do we take our definition of justice out from the Scripture, or do we import modern ideas of justice into that word and then stick it back in the pages of, of Scripture? That's the question. That's the debate we're having. Uh, we have whole books that are, that are in part dedicated to teaching us how to live justly or equitably. So Proverbs 1-3 says basically the whole collection of Proverbs is pulled together in part so that God's people would know how to live um, equitably, mm-hmm. justly, righteously, fairly. Yeah, n- no, no, it isn't. The book, of, the book of Proverbs is not a book about social justice. In fact, there isn't a book in the entire Bible fully devoted to what these guys mean by social justice, not one. Um, Jesus in Matthew 23, 23 says, listen, the whole law, the whole of the law is um, the weightier matters of the law are summed up in mercy and justice and steadfastness. So if we're reading our Bibles and we don't see this theme and and we don't see the explicit commands of God in places like Isaiah 117 and and other places to do justice, love mercy, and so on, that's a hearing impairment. That's a a conditioned (laughs) blindness, right? So everything has to be taken in its proper context. When Isaiah the prophet is speaking regarding justice, He is rebuking the leaders, the officials of the state of Israel in the theocracy. Jesus is doing the exact same thing in Matthew 23, 23 with the religious leaders of his day. Israel has been, the leadership has been corrupt for a very long time, taking bribes, not looking out for the widows, not looking out for the orphans, more interested in their own selves. We have to take these things in context. And Thabiti seems to just enjoy lifting the text out of its context. So uh, give us a good biblical uh, definition of justice then. So uh, here's, here's how I define it with my church in a series that we did uh, earlier this year. Justice is doing the right thing to the right extent for the right people 
in the right way at the right time according to the right interpretation of God's Word. If we were to simplify this and look at the lexical data, we would say that justice is making fair decisions in legal disputes. That's really what justice concerns. Fair decisions in legal disputes. And fair meaning that they reflect the fairness of God, the, the righteousness of God. Simple. And they're sort of taking a flat reading of Romans 13, for example. And I'm just thinking, that's the worst definition of <laughs> just flat the Bible to a proof text, right? That's not, that's not good theology at all, right? And if that's the only aspect of justice, then you've got all these other things the Bible speaks to that, that you're leaving wholly unaddressed. I mean, it, it's ironic. They're, they're not addressed under the umbrella of justice because they're not issues related to, to justice. They're issues related to mercy. They're issues related to charity. They're issues related to giving, caring for widows, caring for orphans. Um, these are not matters related to justice unless you're talking about the abuse of widows, unless you're talking about the fact that in some cases widows were being taken advantage of because there was no man to look out for them, no man to stand up for them, and the, the civil leaders, the officials, were not filling the gap where there was no husband, and the same with orphans who were, who were uh, fatherless. They were being taken advantage of, advantage of in some cases, and there was no one to fill the gap. This is why the Bible often mentions widows and orphans in the same context that it talks about justice because it was so easy to take advantage of those individuals, the widows and the orphans in that culture at that time. Now, of course, in our culture, things are remarkably different when it comes to widows and orphans. And I mentioned this a few podcasts ago. Um, it's we're not living in the same in the same culture. We're not living. First of all, we're not living in a theocracy. We're not living in the same time and not living in the same era. We don't uh, follow the same codes that were written, you know, three thousand years ago to the ancient theocracy uh, that we call Israel. Uh, that's part of the part of the issue here. Uh, it seems to me there should be some insight drawn. Uh, I don't know the old. I don't know the actual Hebrew word, but I do know that the Hebrew word for justice in the Old Testament is either uh, a shared meaning with righteousness or related to the word that means righteousness. That's right. Um, and it seems to me that the role of the church should be, uh, the role of God's people should be in culture to point out where the righteousness of God is being departed from. Uh, whether it's legally or economically or whatever it might be, where, where there's a system in place, there's a system that's going that is taking people away or does not point to the justice of God, the righteousness of God. Now, this is exactly the problem. This is the point. It is not the mission of the church to establish righteous laws in American society. It isn't the mission of the church to establish righteous laws or improve the culture or transform pagan, sinful, ungodly cultures into more just cultures, more righteous cultures, so that we have righteous governments enacting righteous laws using the 3,000-year-old theocracy Israel as their model. That 
has never been the mission of the church. It only became confused when, when Constantinianism invaded the church and has infected it ever since, and we are still plagued with this thinking. But if you go into Christ and you go into the apostles and into the New Testament itself, this kind of thinking is completely absent from the New Testament, and it's irrelevant how early in the church this kind of practice and thinking began. It was wrong from the start. It isn't in the text. And, uh, and it seems to me that, that there's a broader aspect of that than simply the abortion question. And, That's right. and for many, and for many, and this is the way I grew up, that the only thing that had any weight was the abortion question. But if we're looking at the righteousness of God and how to point people toward that, it becomes really clear. There are many, many things in society that are jacked up. And we have an opportunity to say, well, the reason this is unjust is because it doesn't display God's righteousness because of this. And it just doesn't seem like it ought to be that easy to miss that. Now, this is where sometimes Christians really run off the rails here, okay? So we preach that abortion is murder. We preach that you shouldn't murder. We preach that you shouldn't steal, but this is part of the gospel, and it isn't. The church shouldn't be shouldn't be after ending abortion any more than she's after ending murder or ending adultery or in ending fornication. The church recognizes that the the only hope that the culture has is the gospel. So when we go down to the abortion clinic, uh, the guys that, that I see down there, uh, th they preach the gospel because they know that it is the gospel that's going to change the person's heart and perhaps save the baby's life. But we're not after ending abortion. We're after souls. We're after preaching the gospel, making disciples, baptizing converts. The the civil authorities in America have every right to establish immigration laws. They have every right to establish employment laws. And you can expect that in a nation, any nation that is on the face of the earth is a pagan nation. There's no Christian nations. So their laws are going to be, they're going to contain unjust components and unrighteous components because they're created by unrighteous, unjust, unregenerate men and women. So it, it, we are confusing this issue, something fierce, when we start to think f for a moment that the church actually is tasked with the responsibility of stamping out injustices. We're not. We're not called to end sex trafficking. We're not called to end abortion. We're not called to end murder. We're not called to end sin in the culture. We're called to preach the gospel, make disciples, and baptize converts. Someone has to remind us what we're called to do. We're not called to shape laws. We're not called to shape policies and politics. We're called to preach the gospel. That's what we're called to. The only hope any culture has is Christ. Outside of Christ, there's no hope for justice. There's no hope for the downtrodden. There's no hope for the widow, the orphan, the vulnerable. It is the gospel of the kingdom that's going to provide man's only hope. And it's not in the here and now. It's not this over-realized eschatology 
that I hear coming through from these social justice warriors that's also common to the neo-Marxism that comes through Marx himself, even though Marx was a staunch atheist. This is what happens when you co-mingle pagan philosophy with a skewed view of biblical theology. You end up with views like this. But we also have to be anti um, crude speech, yeah. for example. According to James, mm. James says, you know, there, there's certain language we can't use, certain ways we can't speak to our neighbor um, because of the, the image of God, right? Uh, well, I, I think that has a lot to do with how we hold certain politicians accountable mm-hmm. and whether or not we think of them as acceptable politicians, for example. Um, so we can't claim to be just people because we speak out against abortion, but we use the most vile language or we support politicians who use the most vile language and, and demean the image of God, right? So it, it affects speech. Well, what is absolutely, utterly amazing for me is to listen to a black leader in the Christian church raise the issue of vulgar language, compare it to infanticide, child murder, and, and basically say, you know, if you, if the, you can, how can you support a politician who uses vulgar speech uh, even though he's opposed to abortion? Well, first of all, I would, I would say this. All of those politicians use vulgar speech, even the ones that are uh, for abortion. So that's just utterly ridiculous. But what's even more mind-numbing to me is that Enya Bwili brings up vulgar speech uh, and talks about how it's abusive and and denigrates the image of God and doesn't even begin to talk about the vulgarity that is re- that represents the core of black entertainment coming out of the music industry. It is dripping with this kind of speech. It's everywhere. It's all over the place. It permeates the music industry. It permeates comedy. It permeates entertainment top to bottom. But we're going to use it to isolate a politician we don't like and use it as an example to to supposedly show some sort of inconsistency in those people who are are pro-life and vote for a candidate because he's opposed to abortion. Utterly mind-numbing to me and hypocritical to the core. Things, sure. right? So we believe that the Bible is sufficient, but we don't believe it's exhaustive. Sure. So I'm, I'm really not sure how, how you get from sufficient to not exhaustive. So let's, let's just play with this. The Bible is sufficient for faith and practice, but it's not exhaustive. To say that the Bible is not exhaustive means that there are some things that the Bible doesn't cover. It doesn't deal with all the issues. Um, so, okay, if it doesn't deal with all the issues, then in what sense is it sufficient? If, if, it, if, it's, if it doesn't cover an issue, then wouldn't it be the case that it's not sufficient to address that particular issue? Because the Bible's sufficient, it's not exhaustive. But if it is sufficient to cover that issue, then wouldn't that also make it exhaustive? I mean, to me, this is a nonsensical statement. I have no clue uh, how to bring those two things together. The Bible is sufficient but it's not exhaustive. The Bible is sufficient for faith and practice, but it doesn't cover everything that you have to do uh, concerning faith and practice. Hmm, I'm really not sure what that means. 
All right, we want to bring this home at this point, and in order to do that, I want to run over to Thabiti's article. He wrote two articles over at thefrontporch.org, Justice in All Its Parts, Part 1 and 2. I wrote a response to those articles on my blog at Reformed Reasons and also over at Reformation Charlotte. So if you want to stop over there and read those, um, feel free to do so. Hopefully they'll be a blessing. So let's jump into uh, just a, rem- a reminder. Thabiti defines justice in this way, supposedly as a summary from the biblical data. He says, just doing the right thing to the right extent for the right people in the right way at the right time, according to a right interpretation of God's word. Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. Um, He goes on and says, we concluded by insisting that this definition includes at least four aspects of biblical justice. Retributive justice, okay, restorative justice, distributive justice, and procedural justice. These are the four aspects of biblical justice that uh, Anya Bwili thinks that the Bible teaches. And so we come to, uh, I gave this review. I'm not going to do that again. I gave this over at the the blog. I'm not going to get into it here, but I am going to focus on just a couple of things. First of all, I'm going to look at the the idea of distributive justice. Now, one of the things that I said about uh, Thabiti's idea of of distributive justice is that um, there's no lexical data that actually supports this concept. The other areas of justice, um, there is biblical support for those ideas, even though I was critical of Anyabwili for um, expanding the semantic range of those words. He was he read into uh, the idea of righteousness and justice concepts of mercy, and uh, that's just not exegetically warranted. That's uh, not a legitimate move, and I was critical of that. Uh, And I'm more critical even of this idea of distributive justice. So he says, a common, simple way of defining distributive justice is making sure everyone has their fair share. Okay, that sounds familiar. Distributive justice does not require equality of possessions or outcomes. Okay, that's good. That's right. Nor is it simply defined as fitting the thing to be distributed to those who deserve it or are best for it. I'm not sure what that means. Distributive justice is not simply defined as fitting the thing to be distributed to those who deserve it or are best for it. It would seem to me that if I earned a paycheck that that I am best fitted for receiving that that paycheck. If I paid for property, it seems to me that uh, from a, a standpoint of fairness and justice, it it should be mine. It should belong to me. Uh, so I'm really not sure where he's coming up with this, this idea. And then he says, neither is distributive justice a matter of everyone keeping what they've earned. Okay, there you go. So this idea of distributive justice is nowhere found in the the words that are used, uh, mishpat, um, 
sadiq. Um, none of the words that are found in, in, the, in the text around the idea of judgment, justice, righteousness. Um, so I accuse Anyabwili of inventing this basically out of, out of thin air. It's a serious problem for the concept of justice because it's not found anywhere uh, in, the, in the biblical text. He calls on Deuteronomy 15.11, says, which says, For there will ne- never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. I pointed out that this text falls within the um, uh, context of the sabbatic, um, the sabbatic year. But for some reason, this this seems to be completely lost on Thabiti. And the very next verse talks about talks about slavery, which I thought was ironic. Uh, he also jumps to Leviticus nine nineteen nine uh, to to talk about, and he uses the word redistribute. And really, what's going on here is the Jews are taught the 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 Jewish farmers are told to leave. Uh, com- uh, parts of their harvest around the edges of their fields, not to harvest it, not to take it all up and and stick it in the storehouses, but to leave some for th- the poor. And Thabiti uses the word redistribute by leaving gleanings in their fields. So he uses the word redistribute, redistribution. You can see what seems to be going on here, and it's very disturbing. It's very subtle. But the, nevertheless, the principles and the concepts are there, the language is there, the words are there, the expressions uh, are there, even though they are subtle, and this is very problematic. He even goes so far as to say that we see distributive justice played out for us in the New Testament in Ephesians 4.28, which says, let the thief steal no longer, or let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Thabiti calls this distributive justice, and it is not distributive justice. There's The word justice is a misappropriation of language. That justice has nothing to do with me working and then giving money to someone less fortunate. I support missionaries overseas directly outside the bounds of my church. That's not justice. You know, that's me being involved in the ministry. That's me laboring with them in a way, sharing the gospel in foreign countries. has nothing to do with the biblical concept of justice. And there's no way, semantically speaking, uh, that you can leap from the biblical concept of fair judgment righteous judgment over to taking care of the poor. It's just, if you want to do justice to the poor, you treat them fairly. So if if a poor person comes before you in the courts and a rich person comes before you in the courts and they've got the very same scenario, your findings for the poor person should be identical uh, for what they were for the, uh, the wealthy person. If your findings are different just because the person is poor, that's not justice. Okay. 
And the difference here is that oftentimes the rich person has the means to make sure you do treat him fairly. He has the means. The poor person doesn't. The poor person is easier to get over on, easier to take advantage of, easier to manipulate, easier to extort, easier to seduce, easier to, to entice. You can play upon their greed. It's easier for you to get to that sinful aspect of them, and we're told not to do that. That's justice, you see. Not this, this um, the, the way this narrative is played out. For instance, immigration. Uh, I saw something in the paper today that said, a headline in a paper on the way to church today that said, immigrants arrested in, I think it's here in North Carolina. Well, of course it wasn't immigrants, just legal immigrants that were arrested. It was illegal immigrants arrested. But the headline deliberately left off the fact that these are illegal immigrants. And if you listen to some of these evangelical leaders, it's almost a dirty thing for you to put the word illegal in front of immigrants. This is what's happening, folks. This is the manipulation that's taking place. I'm sorry, but according to the scriptures, Caesar the civil authorities have the God-ordained right to establish immigration law and enforce it. And it is not the business of the church of Jesus Christ to go sticking their finger in the chest of the civil authorities and saying to them, you better change your law to accommodate our theology or else. That isn't the duty and the obligation or the behavior of the church. That's not what Scripture says the, the, how the church is supposed to relate uh, with the civil authority. We're to submit. We are to honor the king. We're to honor the emperor. And there, this was when Peter wrote that. Nero was the emperor. Okay. And if you think there was, if you think Trump was worse than, than Nero or Obama was worse than Nero, you have lost your ever-loving mind. Nevertheless, from the standpoint of being God's appointed minister in that seat and that capacity, we are to extend to them respect, even though morally speaking, from a Christian perspective, they're pagan unbelievers and God-haters. We're to submit. We're to pray for them so that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life and all godliness. Yet we're, here we are, busy running around trying to shape the government, trying to tell the king uh, how to govern his people. And the whole principle here again, folks, is this, and I want this to stick uh, if you don't take anything else away from this. It is not the church's role to take ancient, theocratic, governing principles, rules, laws under the old Mosaic covenant that, that were given to the nation of Israel 3,000 years ago, to take those laws, to lift them out of their context, their historical context and their biblical context, arbitrarily, as we see fit, picking and choosing as we go along, because that is absolutely what you have to do to do this, and to bring them over into the new covenant into American culture some 3,000 years later and impose them on American society or on American politics, American government, and American foreign policy. That is not the role of the church. That is an illegitimate use of the text. 
That is not what the text is there for. The church is a type, or Israel is a type of the New Testament church or New Covenant community. These principles are to be pervasive inside our community under the New Covenant, not the laws, the principles that derive from those laws. Visiting widows and orphans in their distress and keeping ourselves unspotted from the world and treating one another justly and fairly, not taking your brother to the law courts and having the pagans decide. See, I don't understand for a moment how we can actually look at that text in Corinthians and still think this way. You see, believers aren't even supposed to be going into the civil courts for disputes amongst themselves to begin with. That's a no-no. Do not take your brother before the pagan courts. Can we as believers not settle our own issues within the community of faith ourselves, being filled with the Holy Spirit and a love for God and a love for one another? This is backwards thinking, folks. It is an illegitimate move. And if you cannot take, if it is illegitimate to impose ancient Israelite law codes onto American culture, then the social justice movement collapses and falls on its face. The other issue here is that this is for these practices, these ideas, these concepts are to be operating within the believing community, not the unbelieving community. But it feels like to me that these men actually think this should be society completely, society at large, everyone not just the Christian community, but everybody. And that is completely and totally foreign to the teachings of the New Testament. We don't see that anywhere, okay? We don't see it. And another thing we don't see, and I'm going to close with this, another thing we don't see are the details with, with this interview with the Beatty. We've seen some details, and ultimately they translate into re- reparations. They translate into give me some money. In, 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 for many of these guys. I'm not saying that that's true for all of them. But for many of these social justice warriors, that's, that's what's happening. This is being used to, to get free tuition uh, and a number of other economic benefits, as if that's going to really solve the problem in, in these communities. It isn't. The only hope is Christ, not money. The only hope is the gospel. Without the gospel, there is no hope. Not for you, not for me, not for the Asian community, not for the African-American community, not for the Irish, the Germans, for none of us. Without the gospel, there is no hope for any of us. All right. Until we rant again, la hitra oat. <laughs>